Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. You can be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles or turn on your electronic device in airplane mode, right? To Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This last week I took a, an unexpected vacation. I got a FaceTime from my son and he said, Hey, Dad, uh, I've got some comp time I need to take and I want to know if you want to take a trip with me to Yosemite National Park. And I said, Duh. So I said, I, I don't know, let me think about my schedule, and I'll see, so if you can clear your schedule, and I said, so you don't want me to meet you there? He said, no, he said, I'll fly you there, I'll pay your way, so as I, I couldn't believe it, so I cleared my schedule, and I went, and I got there, just to me, one of the most incredible places I've ever been, so beautiful, and I thought, I get to be in this place, and, and just be reminded of the incredible creativity of our Creator, And not only that, with all of that beauty and all of that free trip that was paid for, on top of that, I got to spend a week with my son, bonding with him. Now, yeah, give God glory for that. Now, I want to tell you that story because, in essence, in chapter 5, this is what Paul is saying. He is saying, if you will understand that we've been given a, a free gift of eternal life, a home in heaven, a hope that's secured for us, all of that is given to us in the future, and in, and in addition to that, we get to have this incredible lifelong relationship with His Son and spend time with Him. Just a little bit of review. Remember we said that we're going through the book of Romans in chapter 1, some key verses, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe. Remember that? To everyone who believes. And then he sets forth what that salvation is and that all have sinned and fallen short. And now he's talking about justification. That definition of justification we looked at, it is the act of God whereby he declares the sinful person righteous on the basis of what he has done through his son on the cross. That's what justification is. I have been declared righteous because of what Christ has done on the cross. It's a legal matter where God justifies. He says, I'm, I'm taking this sin debt that you have, Kevin, and I'm wiping the slate clean. And not only that, but I'm appropriating to your life righteousness. That's justification. We looked at some illustrations of justification. Remember we said it's by grace. It was at a great cost that it cost the Lord, his one and only son, to purchase that price for us. And in this passage, what Paul is saying is justification doesn't just make a difference into where we're heading, but it makes a difference in how we live. Okay, so don't miss that. That's what we're talking about today. Being right with God doesn't just make a difference in where we're going in eternity, but it makes a difference in where and how we live today. Verse 1, I thought you'd never get there. Therefore, and again, therefore means Paul's been talking about this issue of justification. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. He threw that one. That came out of nowhere, didn't it? Peace, hope, access, glory. Not only that, we rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope, verse 5, will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, was given to us. I love that. The, the grace and the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. Look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the appointed time, some translations say at just the right time, just the right moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person or a righteous person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you've never memorized scripture, I, I encourage you to memorize Romans 5.8. God proves his love for us, and while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than since we have been declared righteous by his blood, that's the cross, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? That's that, that life that he lives through us. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through him. Wow. Justification, being made right with God, doesn't just make a difference in where I spend eternity. It makes a difference in how I live right now. So let's look at some of those benefits of justification. Number one, through faith we are made right with God. We are made right with God. In verse 1 there, we have peace with God. Here's what that means. This faith in Christ makes possible a new relationship with God. We were uh, at enmity. We were alienated from God. We were hostile to God. We were enemies of God. And because of what he's done through Christ, we've been made right with him. We enter into this new relationship. Now, here's a note. It is a present, immediate reality. He says, you have been declared you have peace with God. It is something you possess right now. You don't have to wait till you die to have eternal life. You have it right now. You possess it, a present, immediate reality. We have peace with God. Second point there, we have peace with God. Notice, it doesn't just say we have the peace of God. That's important, that, that God gives us a peace, and we talk about that peace that passes understanding I created a, a, conducted a graveside service for uh, someone who died this week, and I stood there at the graveside, and I talked about the peace of God that God gives at that time. But let, that's not what he's talking about here. He says you have peace with God. It's a, a new relationship. It's a state. It's a position. Whenever two um, entities claim authority over one thing or one place, there's a war. This country says that's ours. This country says, no, that's ours. And what happens? You have a war. And the only way to stop that war is for someone to either be victorious or for them to say, we're going to make peace here. That's what God said. When I, when I say I'm the boss of my own life, when I say I'm going to call the shots in my life, I'm claiming authority over something that's not mine. See, because God says, Kevin, no, your life belongs to me. And when I claim that authority, there's a war there. Because of Christ, he paid the price and took away that distance, that 
that, that sake of me being an enemy with God, and he made us right. Peace with God. I love that. Next truth there, faith in Christ makes possible a new access to God. He says we have peace with God. Verse 2, we have also obtained access through him by faith into his grace in which we stand. That word access literally means to bring near or to be introduced or to make an introduction. Isn't that cool? God says through Christ, I'm giving you an introduction to the Father. I'm, I'm the person that takes you backstage. I'm the, I'm the one that says, put the VIP badge on or the lanyard on. I'm taking you backstage to meet the band. That's, that's what Jesus does. He says, I'm making access to the Father. This access, number one, is through Jesus Christ alone. Don't miss that. It is not through a religion. It's not through a denomination. It's not through activity. It's not through anything you can manufacture yourself. It is through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And they said, Jesus, how can we know the way? And what did he say? He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way. It is through Jesus Christ alone. Now, I've got a note here. Compare that with the Old Testament sacrificial system. If, if, you, if you've ever studied that, you know that in the tabernacle, in the temple, when the, the Jews came to worship, the priest brought their sacrifice, their offering, and there was a place called the holy, the holy Place, and then the Holy of Holies, and there was a curtain that separated the Holy Place from the Holy of Holies. And only one day a year, the high priest could go in on the Day of Atonement to that place, and it, it was called the meeting place. We talk about that a little bit with that propitiation, that meeting place. So there was a separation there with this curtain. It was to say to the people, God is holy and you're not. By the way, if you have trouble reading through Leviticus and, and Numbers and all, the, all the, the rituals and all the cleansing and everything, and you say it's impossible for anybody to live that way and to, to be clean all the time, and then you get it. That's what Leviticus is saying. Nobody can be good enough. There's a veil that separates us from God. Christ took care of that. Just another note here. We'll talk about that more in a minute. This, this access that we've been given is unchanging. Look at what the, the, the passage says there. In verse 2, we've obtained access through him by faith into his grace, this grace, in which we stand. What does it mean to stand? It means to count on it. It means to depend on it. This access that I have is a sure thing, and we'll talk about that assurance in a moment. You know, people go through life looking for stuff when Jesus says, here I am. Even as believers, we have a tendency to say, okay, I'm going to trust Christ as my Savior. I'm going to admit that I've sinned. I'm going to invite him to be my personal Lord and Savior, to commit to follow him. And then we start looking other places for, for assurance and hope and fulfillment. I put a new water pump on my car yesterday, hence the knuckles and grime under my fingernails. I tried, I really did try to get it clean. But there, there were a couple of times there where I was looking for a wrench. And I'm thinking, I just had it. I've gone to the point where I even put out a little table and I lay all my tools out so I won't miss that. And I'm looking all over for my wrench. And you know what? It's in my pocket the whole time. <laughs> Having a couple of times, where is that socket? It's on the end of the wrench, you know, <laughs> digging through. And, and, and I think that's a picture of a lot of us. We, we're to stand in who we are in Christ but we're looking everywhere else. And he's saying, I'm right there. I'm on the end of the three-eighths drive. <laughs> I'm in your back pocket. And then he says, faith in Christ makes possible a new hope. 
Some have said this is past, present, future. Past, I've been given peace with God. My sins are forgiven. Present, I have access to the Father. And future, I have this hope. Christ makes possible a hope. Verse 2, he says, we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, this word hope is not like the world says. The world says, I hope so. They just, people that don't know Christ, they're just hoping maybe it'll happen. It's wishful thinking. This hope in Scripture is a sure and certain confidence. When the, when the word hope is used in Scripture, most of the time, it's not thinking, well, maybe so, I'm wishing It'll happen. It is a confident assurance. So here's what Paul says. We, we, have, we rejoice in the certainty of a relationship with God and the glory that's to come. Number two, our confidence is in his coming glory. It's complete. Complete. I read about a man this week who'd been severely burned in an accident. And the, the surgeons kept performing all of these skin grafts. And the nurses came in and the doctors came in and they just all this medical attention was given to him and all this advice and they were explaining everything and he got through the whole thing and the person telling the story says he didn't get through that because they explained every step of the process to him. He didn't get through it because all the doctors told him medically what was wrong. He got through it because somebody in that net, network of, of physicians and medical staff said, you're going to be okay. You're going to get through this. That's what got the guy through it. That's what Paul's saying. It's going to, because we're going to talk about affliction in a minute. He's saying, it's okay, you're going to get through. You have this confident hope. So remember, we said justification makes a difference, not only in where we spend eternity, the future, but also right now, how we act and respond in the present. So let's look at that acting and responding in the present. Number two, if you're taking notes. Through faith, we have a new understanding of suffering. Again, I kind of said that, that that statement in verse 3 came out of left field, but it really didn't because Paul planned this. And not only that, we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces character, proven character. Proven character produces hope, and hope will not disappoint. Paul is saying this. We have a new understanding of suffering. You know, the, the, the world's view, the secular view of suffering is that it, it's just a part of life that interrupts life. That's the way people who don't walk with Christ see suffering and see trials and see affliction. Oh, it's just an interruption in what my life was going to be, and I just have to deal with it. That's not the Christian view. That, that word afflictions, some translations say tribulations, means pressure from outside circumstances. Pressure from the outside circumstances in your life that come your way that produce suffering and difficulty. Here's what Paul says. We rejoice because of the future outcome. We rejoice because of the future outcome. Rejoice in our sufferings. I don't want to make a big deal about this, but he really isn't saying rejoice for, but implied he's saying in the midst of your affliction, and you're suffering, you know that God's going to use it. I don't go around jumping up and down, oh boy, the water pump broke on the car. Yay. Usually it's, oh man, what's next? But I say, okay, Lord, here I am. I don't know why you've allowed this, but I want you to get the glory. See, our joy as, as followers of Christ does not depend on our circumstances. It does not depend on our performance. 
Did you, did you, as you sang the words we were singing, it's who we are. Uh, We are not who we are based on our performance. Who we are is based on the love of a heavenly father who gave his only son to die for us. That's who we are. That's where our joy comes from. That's where our hope is. Here's a, a, just, you need to remember that. My, My life as a believer, my joy, my rejoicing is not based on circumstances. Jonathan Edwards said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. God gets the glory, not just because I say, okay, God, you're doing something here, but God, I rejoice in the fact that you're doing something here. So here's a formula, simple formula. Pressure plus right attitude equals growth. Pressure plus right attitude equals growth. In verse 4, where, or 3 and 4, where Paul talks about afflictions and endurance and, and character, uh, the, J.B. Phillips translates that verse. I love the phrase he puts at the first part of that, that section on all those, those things, the endurance, character, perseverance. He says, taken in the right spirit, God will use those very things to shape you. Taken in the right spirit, follower of Christ, Christian believer, God is going to allow suffering in your life, circumstances that you don't want, that you didn't expect, taken in the right spirit. God's going to use them for his glory. So here's, here's what I was told years ago, and I still, I still apply this. Sometimes it takes me a while to get there. Okay, But the question is not why. Now, how many of you ask why when something happens? Come on, be honest. All right, okay. I usually have to get through the Why? To get to the what now. So instead of saying, oh God, why me? I say, okay God, what now? What's next? Your car just broke down. That, that storm just came. That crisis just happened to my family. God, what are you going to do now? What do you want to do now? And it's not a sense, what now God? But what now? What's my response to be? By the way, this is not this sermon, but whenever there is a difficulty that comes into your life, it is, it is appropriate to ask the question, could God be bringing this into my life to get my attention because there's sin in my life? Right? That's a whole other sermon. Could, could it be an intervention where God's not punishing me for my sin? That happened at the cross, by the way. If you receive Christ, your sins have been punished. They're dealt with. That's the wrath of God, Says Paul says, it's been taken away. But, but God will send consequences to get your attention. So you have to ask yourself, God, is this, is this you intervening in my life to say, wake up, Christ follower. I've allowed this circumstance to get your eyes off of you and the stuff and get your eyes on me. By the way, you know, I've never had to be a part of one, a couple times almost, Whenever there's an intervention, whether it's drugs or, or somebody that has some habit or something's going on, and who comes together to intervene? People who love that person. And they come together and they say, we're doing this and it's not easy and it's tough, but we love you so much. This is an intervention. Your drinking's got to stop. Your drug abuse has to stop. Your abuse has to stop, whatever. That's by people who love you. So if you're... If God is bringing circumstance into your life as an intervention to get your attention, it's because he loves you. Don't ever forget that. I just can't leave without reading James chapter 1. Some of you thought about that when I read this. So I think I've heard that before. 
Where is James? James, James. Well, I knew it was at the very back. Before 1 Peter. Well, thanks for the help there. So it's in the New Testament. James chapter 1. Listen to verse 2. Sounds like Paul, but it's not as James. Consider it great joy, my brothers. He's talking to believers. Whenever you experience various trials, same, same statement, isn't it? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. James says the same thing. God's going to allow stuff in your life to grow you. And it's going to either make you better, unfortunately it makes some of us bitter. I'm either going to grow through it or I'm going to get stuck. I need to look through the suffering. I need to look through the affliction. I need to to look to the certainties. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying affliction, suffering, challenges, circumstances, negative things are going to come in your life. Look through them to to, to what God's up to. I read about a church in South Africa. Jeremy Begbie tells this story. He'd gone to worship. It was a very poor township. And uh, as they came to worship that night, the, the people of the church informed him that a, a, a house just around the corner had just burned to the ground because some people suspected the person who lived there of something. And he said that they were telling him just a few weeks before a, a storm came through and blew the roofs off of some of these, these, these homes, the just cheap homes. And 50 people were, 50 homes were devastated and five people died. And then as they're going to worship, they told about a a 14-year-old young man in their Sunday school of that church had been harassed by a gang and had just been stabbed to death. And so that church comes all together to worship. And so the pastor gets up and prays, Lord, you're creator and sovereign, but why did the wind come like a snake and tear off our roofs? Why did the mob cut short the life of one of our own children when he had everything to live for? Over and over again, Lord, we are in the midst of death. That's a heartfelt, honest pastor's prayer right there. I think he's saying why. But as he finished his prayer, some of the people in the church started singing softly. And a few other people joined in the song. And a few other people joined in the song. And this soft song became a congregational song. And it built and it got louder and louder and louder, and they sang for a, I don't know how long. And as they sang, their focus got off the stuff and got on their sovereign creator. That's what happens when you rejoice in the suffering, looking through it to what God can do, to his certainties. Let her see growth is a process. It's a process. And I'm just going to walk through these quickly, this d- description here that Paul gives in in 3 and 4 there. Affliction produces endurance, first thing he says. Some translations say tribulation produces patience. That that means a single-mindedness. It causes us to focus on what's really important. Affliction causes me to get my eyes off of stuff and get my eyes on him. I remember getting the phone call when I was in my last critical semester of seminary in Fort Worth. And the call was, you need to come home to El Paso. Your mom's not going to make it. So she'd been battling cancer for years, and finally it was the time, and I'm thinking, okay, you know what I did? 
I said, I'm too busy right now. I need to finish seminary. No, I didn't say that. I said, let's get to El Paso, however quickly I can get there. And seminary took a back seat to be in there for my family. See, that's what affliction does. It, it, it realigns your priorities and says, this is what's important. This is what you need to focus on. Single-mindedness. Affliction produces that focus is another way to say that. I love what Tim Keller says, and others have probably said it too. You don't really know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Number two, endurance produces proven character. Some translations say experience. That kind of gets the sense of that word, that proven character, that strength of character. Some translations say ripeness of character. Basically, it's proof that we've stood the test. It refers to a metal that's been, that's been smelted and, 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 is that the right word, smelted? Yeah, yeah, smelted and, and refined. Thank you for those of you who nodded yes. Um, and and it's, it's purified. That's what that is, proven character. It, it, it has the sense of, a, of, a, of experience. And if you think about a, a football team that gets to go to the playoffs, and they go to the playoffs the first year, and they've never been to the playoffs. And man, it's, it's weird. Because a lot of times, especially in high school, you're the top dog in your region, your district, and then you go and you're overwhelmed. And, 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 and the, the mindset of that word usage is, is, this is talking about a football team that's been in the playoffs before. And they show up at the playoffs and they know exactly what to expect because they've experienced it. That's that, that's that sense of that word there. This endurance that produces proven character. Experience, you've been through it. Thirdly, proven character produces hope. It produces hope. That's where we're going. Paul is saying through this whole thing, hope. By the way, the King James Version uses the word tribulation there. The Latin word tribulum spoke of a a heavy beam with spikes in it that was used to to, uh, winnow grain and get the chaff from the grain. And it's it's a picture of this, this hope that comes when you've separated the chaff from what's important. It's just a theme that runs through this whole passage. So before we wrap up, let me just say again, justification makes a difference in not only where we're going, eternity in heaven, but it makes a difference in how we act and respond right now to the good times and the bad. So number three, verses six through 11 Paul says, through faith we have a new assurance of the final and complete salvation. Ultimately, eternity in the presence of God. First of all, he is saying our hope is grounded in God's unfailing love for us. Look at verse 6 with me. For we, while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. And then skip down to verse 8. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated. God commended, some translations say. We're grounded in that. By the way, a lot of people in the world dispute the resurrection of Christ. Did it really happen? People debate that all the time. But a, a far greater number of people than you would imagine identify with the fact that Jesus was a historical figure. And they will say, yes, he did die on a cross there in Jerusalem. It's a historical fact. So in essence, Paul is saying here, you can base part of your assurance on the historical fact that Christ died 
for you. He demonstrated his love. You want to know if God loves you? It's not a touchy-feely, warm and fuzzy thing. Look at the historical event of the cross that Christ died for you. Be grounded in that. Paul is saying in here, in the whole another sermon here, but if, if he loved us enough to die for us when we were his enemy, how much more can you trust his love now that you're a member of his family? Our hope is grounded in his unfailing love. Our hope is based on the finished work of Christ at the cross. Again, verse 9, we have now been declared righteous by his blood, saved through him from wrath. That's the cross. Enemies reconciled to God. Remember I talked about the the curtain in the temple and the tabernacle that separated the people from the holiness of God? Do you know what happens in the Gospels when you read about Jesus Christ on the cross and, and he says it is finished and the Bible says he breathed his last breath? You know what it says right with that? The veil, the curtain, and the temple was torn from top to bottom. A supernatural miracle to say the way to God has been opened through the cross. The one who opened heaven's doors is going to make sure you arrive there. I love that. Justification makes a difference in where you spend eternity. And if you haven't settled that, I'm going to to ask you to do that in just a minute. It's going to make a difference in where you spend eternity. And it's not just enough that Jesus died for you. It's that he wants you to, by faith, accept it. The Bible says in John chapter 1, as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you've never received Christ as Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a minute. Then, that, that, then you have justification applied to your life. It'll make a difference in where you spend eternity. But secondly, justification, because we've been made right with God, makes a difference in how we live the Christian life. I've shared this story recently, but I'm going to share it again. Don Richardson, missionary to Dutch New Guinea, took his wife, and they lived back with a tribe way isolated. This tribe had a history of being headhunters and cannibals. He took his wife to live there, and they began to learn the language of that culture and so that he could translate the Bible into their language. Spent years doing that. Built relationships with those people. He really had a hard time because some of the verb tenses, they said had like, verbs had like 19 tenses to them. You know, not just past, present, future, but 19. But he got it all figured out and he began to write it and, and it, it got difficult for his family. Things were not going well because the culture seemed to elevate evil and wickedness and downplay right. right. So he had a hard time and it came a time where he was ready to leave and the villages around there found out about it. And they said, we, we'll stop our fighting. By the way, village fought village all the time. They said, we'll stop our fighting. And Richardson discovered something that happened there that was really the the key to him communicating the gospel to them. For this village over here to say to this village over here, we're not going to fight with you anymore, he saw them taking their children and exchanging, going over there and giving their children to the other village. To say, I'm going to give you my child as a token that I'm going to trust you. And this village did the same. And Richardson called it, this, this picture of redemption, a redemptive analogy. And here's what he wrote. He said, if a man would actually give his own son to his enemies, that man can be trusted. So he told the people, you know what you just did? You demonstrated what God has done for you. 
He loved you enough, and you were his enemy, that he gave you his only son so that you could be right with him. And he led the whole culture to Christ. God loved you so much, he sent his one and only son to die for you. Don't, don't walk away from that offer. Don't, don't say another time. Don't say, I'm a good person. Just don't walk away from that. By faith, trust him as your savior. If you're a follower of Christ today and you have trusted him as savior, walk in it. Let's pray.